Uh, well, friends, uh, we've had the, the blessing of uh, lots of babies born to uh, different brothers and sisters at church uh, in 2016, and uh, I hope that uh, that trend of uh, natural church growth uh, will continue uh, throughout this year. But uh, this morning, I want you to cast your mind back uh, to your own birth, and uh, I, want to, uh, I want to ask you... Who came to visit when you were born? Uh, who came to visit when you were born? Uh, I was born in uh, 1970 <laughs> uh, in Korea. Uh, I, I obviously uh, can't remember anything about uh, the birth and uh, who was there, but uh, I imagine um, uh, you know, my extended family came to visit uh, perhaps some of my parents' friends uh, came to the hospital uh, on that day. But that's about the extent of it, really. Um, as far as I know, uh, the President of the United States didn't get on a plane uh, to come and see this glorious birth. Uh, the cast of Star Wars, uh, which I think was released in 1977, uh, didn't come to pay homage to this uh, wonderful baby. Uh, in fact, I don't think anyone, uh, rich or famous, uh, came to visit me uh, in hospital. Uh, did anyone have anyone notable come and, uh, come and visit them? Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, now, uh, it's, it seems a little bit silly uh, to think that such significant people would go out of their way uh, to go and visit a baby that they had absolutely no connection with. Uh, but in today's passage, uh, one of the striking things is that that is exactly what happens uh, with the birth of Jesus. Uh, you notice there that some distinguished people, uh, as we heard in the kids' talk, called wise men, uh, come to visit uh, at the birth of this baby. Why would these men go to such lengths to see this child, I wonder? Uh, now, who were these men who visited the baby Jesus? Well, uh, in the popular imagination, uh, they were three kings who came from the Orient. Um, so, uh, hands up if you've heard the, the Christmas song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Uh, we've all heard the song. And uh, that drives uh, uh, the popular view, I think. But in the Bible, uh, we're not actually told that uh, they were kings. Uh, although we can probably guess that they were wealthy, uh, by the kind of gifts they bring and the fact that they were able to travel long distances. But we're not told that they were kings. Uh, nor are we told that there were three of them. Uh, we just make that assumption because, well, there were three gifts. But uh, as you know, um, uh, you don't need three people to give three gifts. Uh, I received uh, three presents from uh, one person before. And uh, sometimes I've, I've received one present from uh, 50 people who don't want to spend a lot of money. But uh, if you have a look at verse 1 in, this, in the passage this morning, you'll notice that they, were they are described as wise men from the East. Uh, wise men from the East. Now, uh, we don't know exactly who these wise men were. Uh, in the Old Testament, you actually... Um, uh, meet uh, some wise men who uh, operate outside of Israel. Uh, can anyone uh, 
Does anyone know where we see wise men in the Old Testament? Just throw up your hand if you can remember uh, where you see wise men in the Old Testament. No one? Thanks, Luke. Okay, I'll take your word for it. I didn't think of that. <laughs> in Proverbs. Okay. There were wise men there. Jason? In Egypt. Yeah, what happens in Egypt? Yeah, so you remember uh, in, in Egypt, um, Pharaoh calls on his wise men who uh, are able to practice magic and sorcery and uh, who even interpret, uh, uh, who are even called in to interpret his dreams. Uh, there's one other place. Uh, in the Old Testament, where we see wise men. You want to have a guess? Yep, Tom? Yeah, uh, in Babylon. And, and what happens in Babylon? Yeah, so the king of Babylon calls in his wise men uh, to come and, and interpret uh, his dream. Um, so uh, it's likely that uh, these wise men uh, were people who practiced magic and, uh, and uh, you know, were called in to interpret dreams and things like that. Uh, they were also most probably into astrology. Uh, for you'll see there that uh, they see a star and they recognize that the king of the Jews has been born. Uh, we're not told uh, what kind of star this was, and there's been endless speculation as to what they actually saw. Uh, we're, we're not told how they made the connection between the star and the birth of the king of the Jews. But in some extraordinary way, uh, these men connect this star with the birth of the Jewish Messiah. And they recognize that this baby that is born, this Jewish uh, king has significance not only for the nation of Israel, but for them as well, people who live outside of Israel. And so they go to the capital city of Jerusalem to find out exactly where this baby is born, uh, not only just to visit him, but notice so they can worship him. But friends, uh, notice that not everyone is as pleased about the birth of Jesus as these wise men. Uh, we're told in verse 1 that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. Uh, unlike Jesus, uh, Herod wasn't a legitimate Jewish king with uh, royal ancestry, as we've seen in the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, he was a puppet king who was installed by the Romans to rule a part of Israel called Judea. Uh, but you can see there that when Herod hears from the wise men about the birth of the one they call King of the Jews, well, he doesn't receive the news very well, does he? And so if you have a look at verse 3, uh, look at uh, what, what uh, Matthew says in verse 3. He says, When Herod the king heard this, that is, heard about the, the birth of the king of the Jews, he's troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would all of Jerusalem be troubled at the birth of this baby? Uh, why would all of Jerusalem be troubled at the birth of this baby? Well, it's because 
the people of Jerusalem know from bitter experience that Herod is a paranoid king. Uh, When Herod hears of anyone who is a potential rival to his rule, then people know that dreadful things can happen. And the one who has just been born is called the king of the Jews. I mean, this was a man who had previously slaughtered his very own wife and his mother-in-law and his three children, his three sons, because he thought that they would be a threat to his, his rule and his power. In fact, he was so neurotic that historians of the day tell us that when Herod was on his deathbed, he actually ordered the massacre of uh, the notable or influential men in Jerusalem so that the moment he died, the city would be in mourning rather than rejoicing. And so you can see why Herod and the people are troubled. And you can see what Herod intends to do with this baby. It's just that at this stage, he doesn't quite know where this king of the Jews has been born. Uh, It's quite obvious from uh, this passage that uh, he doesn't know his his Bible very well. And so you can see there in verse 4 that he calls in the religious leaders to advise him and the wise men on where the Christ which is the the Jewish title for the king of the Jews, uh, on where this Christ was to be born. Uh, Who were these religious leaders? Well, you can see there in verse 4, can't you, that they were chief priests and and, uh, scribes. Uh, The priests were the ones who served in the temple. The scribes were the legal experts in the law of God in particular and the Old Testament Uh, in general. And uh, you can see there that when Herod asks them where the Christ is to be born, well, they know immediately the answer to that question. He's going to be born in the little city of Bethlehem. Uh, Verse 5. Have a look with me at verse 5. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, Now, friends, uh, Bethlehem was uh, a bit of a a nowheresville uh, in Israel. Uh, It was a little bit like the suburb of Forestville in Sydney. Uh, Has anyone been to Forestville before? Um, Some of us have been there. Uh, It's a sleepy little suburb uh, in the north of Sydney uh, that's surrounded by uh, bigger suburbs. Uh, As far as I can work out, nothing much happens in Forestville. Uh, They're kind of stuck in, in, uh, you know, uh, the dark ages. Um, There are a few shops, (laughs) um, but that's about it, I think. But Forestville does have a claim to fame. Does anyone know uh, what Forestville's claim to fame is? No? Anyone? No? Um, Well, I'll tell you. Uh, It's the place where Tony Abbott, uh, the previous Prime Minister, lives. Uh, That's its only claim to fame. 
Uh, the only notable thing about this suburb is its connection with a famous prime minister. And Bethlehem was a little bit like that. <laughs> it was a bit of a nowheresville. Uh, no one really took much notice. But it was the place where King David, one of the, uh, the greatest, possibly the greatest king in Israel's history, was born. And many years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Micah predicted that the Christ, or the Messiah, would come from this town, this little sleepy town called Bethlehem. And the religious leaders knew it. And so there we have it. Uh, Matthew introduces us to, to three characters who all respond in different ways to the king of the Jews, to, the, to Jesus who was born. You have the wise men, uh, you have Herod, and you have the religious leaders. And friends, uh, I want to suggest to you this morning that the way these characters respond to Jesus is exactly the same way that people respond to Jesus today. I mean, think about the sheer indifference of the religious leaders for a moment. Oh yes, they know their Bibles. They can even quote the Bible when prompted. But what do they do with this knowledge? They don't even bother to go and search for the king that they, had, they knew was born in the town of Bethlehem. Now, I think that m many people who are in our churches respond to Jesus like this, don't they? They are religious. They might have been attending church for many, many years. They might even be able to quote the Bible to you. And yet when Jesus makes demands on their life, well, they refuse to be bothered. I wonder whether you or, you or I respond to Jesus in this way. Uh, or think about the bitter hostility of Herod. Uh, here is a man who refuses to allow Jesus to rule his life. He will not tolerate any other king but himself. Again, you see this kind of hostility towards Jesus in our world, don't you? Uh, now, I know that not all um, people who claim to be atheists uh, are like this, but there is a brand of atheism that rages against religion in general and Christianity in particular. Uh, listen to what uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who represent a lot of uh, modern-day atheists, uh, wrote in the late 1800s. Uh, it's coming up on the screen behind me. He writes, uh, I call Christianity the one great curse, the one great intrinsic depravity. I call it the one immortal blemish of mankind. But what would cause a man to display such hostility towards Christianity? Now, could it be that they are feeling threatened by Jesus? Could it be that they know that this king 
challenges their way of life and their way of thinking and their system of morality. They do not like the idea of giving up their pretend kingship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they lash out in hostility. Have you known people who respond to Jesus like this? Perhaps we might respond to Jesus like this at times. Can we take the slide down, Robert? But friends, uh, then there are the wise men, aren't there? Uh, It's ironic, isn't it, that Herod and the religious leaders of Israel, who should have recognised the Christ or the Messiah that was predicted to come in their own scriptures, it's, it's ironic, isn't it, that they are the ones who fail to respond to him in the right way, and yet it is these wise men from outside of Israel who travel vast distances to come and worship the king of the Jews. Somehow they recognise that in Jesus, God's blessing will come not only to the nation of Israel, but in fact to the nations. And so when they find out where he is born, they travel to Bethlehem. And uh, listen to how they respond in verse 10. I think this is one of my favourite verses uh, in this passage. Uh, Verse 10, it says, They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's it's kind of over-the-top kind of language, isn't it? How many times can you, you know, emphasise joy? And uh, you know the story. When they see Jesus, they fall at his feet in worship, and they bring their expensive gifts, and they lavish these gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and offer it to their king. You see, friends, this is what worship of Jesus looks like, doesn't it? It looks like giving up our time to search for Jesus, just as these wise men did. It looks like being inconvenienced in travelling such a great distance just because they want to know this one called the King of the Jews. It means giving the best we have to offer, not just the scraps in our lives, because we understand how precious and worthy is this king. It means letting Jesus shape how we use our days and how we use our minds and how we use our wallets. It means letting Jesus be king in our lives. Uh, I don't know how everyone here has responded to Jesus in 2016. Uh, I imagine we all responded to him in slightly different ways. But as we begin 2017, uh, God's word challenges us here, doesn't it? Will we recognise and rejoice in our king? Will we give him the best of our time and our energy and our money and the things that we value because in Jesus we know God's blessing has come to us. Will we engage in this kind of extravagant worship uh, as we begin 2017? Uh, Now friends, um, you'll notice there that uh, chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 uh, is really all about the response 
uh, of uh, the wise men to King Jesus. Uh, and in many ways, uh, we could stop the sermon there, can't we? Uh, but I'm sure you noticed the threat to Jesus' life that has been building and building uh, from the beginning. Uh, Herod wants the wise men to search for Jesus, and then he wants the wise men to bring back word uh, about where the baby is so that he can, quote in his own words, uh, also go and worship him. But we are told later that his intention is not to worship Jesus, but to destroy him. And so when the wise men don't return after being warned in a dream, well, you'll notice there that Herod goes into a rage. Uh, What is the extent of this rage? Uh, Well, you see the extent there in verse 16, don't you? In the unspeakable atrocity of murdering all the baby boys in the town of Bethlehem who were two years old and under in the hope of eliminating Jesus. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Uh, You see, here we have a human ruler with all the power at his disposal trying to destroy the Christ, who is only an infant boy at this stage. I mean, it shouldn't have been so hard, don't you think? But I want you to notice two very important things about this threat to Jesus' life. Firstly, notice that God is at work protecting this child from harm. Notice that God is at work protecting this child from harm. Uh, In verse 13, he sends an angel to Joseph, uh, warning him in advance that Herod is uh, about what Herod is going to do, and he instructs him to take Jesus and Mary down to Egypt in order to uh, dodge the danger. Uh, I find it fascinating that the angel keeps on using the phrase the child and his mother. He doesn't say the mother and child. He says the child and his mother. The focus here is is on preserving this child. And again, in verse 19, a similar thing happens. Uh, By this time, uh, Herod is dead. And so God speaks to Joseph in Egypt through an angel, uh, instructing him to take the child and his mother and return to Israel. But because Herod's son, uh, Archelaus, is reigning uh, in the place of his father, uh, God speaks to Joseph in a dream and tells him to not live in the town of Bethlehem because the danger is still real there but to go and live further north in a town called Nazareth, which is in the Gentile region of Galilee. But secondly, I want you to notice that the things that happen here fulfill God's purposes in the Old Testament. Uh, You may have noticed that Matthew keeps on repeating the language of fulfillment uh, in this passage. Uh, Verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Uh, Now, at times, 
the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament is fairly straight in, in verse 6, haven't we? That Micah predicts that uh, the, the Christ or the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, that's the prediction. And uh, we see in this passage the fulfillment. Uh, that's exactly what happens. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And so you know that God has kept his promise. His word has been fulfilled. Um, it's a bit like uh, putting on you know, your favourite pair of jeans. It just kind of fits nicely, doesn't it? Uh, God predicts something is going to happen, and it happens exactly as he predicted it would. But if you are a careful reader of the Bible, uh, you may have noticed that when Matthew speaks of fulfilment in this passage, it doesn't always work in that straightforward, nice-fitting kind of way. Did you notice that? And so, for example, in verse 15, uh, the context is uh, uh, the angel has told uh, Joseph to take his family down to Egypt. And in verse 15, notice that Matthew quotes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. But if you read Hosea, uh, in the passage that is being quoted here, God is not explicitly talking about the future coming of the Messiah. He's just recounting the fact that in the past... He saved the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so how does Jesus going down to Egypt fulfill Hosea chapter 11 verse 1? Uh, It kind of feels like Matthew is doing a bit of a fudge here in some ways. Uh, It feels like, you know, putting on those same pair of jeans after Christmas lunch. You know, it doesn't kind of fit as well and uh, you have a little bit of a muffin top going and uh, you know it's a bit of a fudge Uh, I wonder whether you can just turn to the person sitting next to you and uh, just discuss how you think uh, this fulfills uh, Hosea 11.1 just exercise uh, uh, your your minds for a a moment with the person sitting next to you Okay, uh, that's, uh, that's enough time. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think? How does uh, uh, what is happening uh, uh, with uh, Jesus and his family going down to Egypt, how does that fulfill Hosea chapter 11, verse 1? Anyone have any thoughts? There was a lot of talking. Yeah, uh, that, that's certainly true. Um, I'm not sure uh, how that... Um, Uh, explains the fulfilment uh, that's going on here, um, according to Matthew, but uh, that's certainly true. Um, Yeah, yeah. So uh, um, Israel, the history of Israel, uh, was a little bit of a picture uh, of what what was going to happen uh, later on. Yeah, Uh, that's really helpful. And and I think that's the key to understanding uh, this kind of fulfilment. Uh, you see, not all fulfilment uh, in the Bible is the straightforward, you know, God predicts something and it happens exactly as he predicted kind of fulfilment. Um, it's not like, you know, uh, putting all. Uh, this is one of my youngest daughter's jigsaw puzzles. Um, 
And you'll notice there that uh, it's got a few missing pieces. But you know as well as I do that when you do a jigsaw puzzle, um, it's not only about finding a piece that fits the shape. Yeah? Uh, if you do a, a jigsaw puzzle that's slightly bigger than that, uh, you, you'll actually find that lots of pieces can fit the shape. But what is, uh, what is the way to complete the jigsaw puzzle? Well, you need to find a piece that not only fits the shape, but fits the pattern. And so uh, you need to find uh, a piece that has the face of, uh, what's her name, Queen, Queen Elsa, Princess Anna, uh, and you, you have to have a piece that fits the actual pattern uh, of what is going on uh, in the picture. And uh, I think the fulfilment of God's word is very similar. The Old Testament gives you the story or the pattern, and Jesus fulfills perfectly that story or that pattern. And so what's going on with Hosea chapter 11? Well, Hosea 11 talks about the Exodus. Um, And the Exodus was the time when Israel was oppressed by the king of Egypt called Pharaoh. Uh, Here, in this passage, we see Jesus being oppressed by another evil king called Herod. In the Exodus, Israel passes through the river Jordan and is tested in the wilderness, if you remember. Later on, in Matthew's Gospel, we will see that Jesus passes through water as well in the baptism of John the Baptist, and he will be tested himself by Satan. Only this time, Jesus will not sin like the people of Israel did back in the Exodus. In other words, friends, what we see in Jesus Jesus is a new Exodus. And this son will be the perfect son that Israel never was. Matthew is saying, look at the pattern of Israel's history and then look at Jesus and see that he is the one who fits the pattern perfectly. In him there is hope of a new exodus where God's people can experience true freedom, Uh, not just from an earthly evil king, but true freedom from Satan and from death and sin. Now, uh, we don't have uh, time to go through all the instances of uh, God fulfilling his promises in this passage, and perhaps you might want to... um, Uh, have a chat about some of the other um, instances that you see there. But what this shows us is that God is a God who keeps his promises. It's an extraordinary thing, don't you think, that the God who created uh, the heavens and the earth is the same God who makes promises to his people. He promises to bless them He promises to save them from their sins. He promises to be with them and to rule over them as their gracious king. And in Jesus, all these promises are fulfilled. Uh, Friends, we live in a world of uh, broken promises, don't we? 
Uh, as we begin a new year, I'm sure that uh, we'll begin to make all sorts of uh, promises to ourselves and, and to other people around us. Um, I've already promised uh, that I'll do more exercise in 2017, and uh, I know that uh, it's only a matter of time uh, till I break that particular promise. Uh, and many of our promises are like that. Uh, we can kind of live with um, a certain amount of broken promises. But broken promises can also be devastating. The broken promises in a marriage, for example. The broken promises of parents to their children. The broken promises in politics and and those in power. Broken promises can destroy and shatter relationships because broken promises shatter trust. But but what God is reminding us of here is that he is a God who keeps his promises. In Jesus, all God's promises find their fulfillment. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. His name is Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew is saying, look at him. Look at this one who is born king of the Jews. Do you see in him the one who fulfills all his promises to his people? And if you do recognize that he is that one, then worship him. Fall at his feet, rejoicing like these wise men. Offer him the best of your gifts. For he is worth everything. Let's pray.